Well, this weekend, we will take a break from our study of the seven churches of Revelation. We'll return to that series next weekend. But today, we have a little treat in store. We will hear from a dear friend of our communities. Many of you know Rob Harder. He has an impressive background. He brings insight and leadership experience to several boards and councils throughout the state. He is the executive director of one of our compassion partner organizations, the Christian Center of Park City. He has received his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees, but really he always just brings a whole nother level of energy when he gets up on this stage to teach. So will you open your hearts with me? Let's pray as he comes. Lord, thank you again for our time together to gather in your name, Jesus. Thank you for blessing this community with such incredible people and such talent and insight. And so, Lord, as Rob speaks now, would you bless him as he comes? Open our hearts to what you have to say through this message. Open our minds and let us open our lives to you in a new way. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. I've been telling her, I, I need to pay her for those introductions. Those are awesome. Thank you. Maybe we can record that next time. That's great. Hey, so good morning, Capital. It's good to be here with you. How many people are excited about the Olympics? You guys kind of fired up about, okay, good, a few, yeah. You know, think about the Zika virus, the water issues, the crime issues. Like, this has been the worst buildup to the Olympics that I remember. But uh, I'm glad you're still excited. I am too. Now, I want to give you a scenario, all right, to start out this morning. Pretend you go home tonight. Well, hopefully you go home tonight sometime. <laughs> so tonight, you're at home. Someone comes knocking on the door as you're watching TV. And it's the Olympics committee. And they say, hey, um, because of the Zika virus, one of our marathon runners is deciding to not run in the Olympics. And we've done an exhaustive search. We've looked at 250 million across the United States. We've looked at your background. We've looked at your bone structure. We've looked at your family history. And we have decided that you are the best replacement for our Olympic marathon race to represent the United States. Welcome to the Olympics. As you drop your drink and you're staying there, um, you're thinking, okay, wow, what do I do? So some of you who only run like from the refrigerator to the couch and back, this is going to be a shock. You're like, I've never run a marathon. I've not run more than 30 seconds. Um, but then some of you, I know Capital, there's a lot of athletes in this uh, church. And so some of you are like, hey, that would be amazing. But wherever you fall in that spectrum of great athlete or maybe not so great, um, it doesn't matter. When it comes to the option or the opportunity to be a marathon runner in the Olympics, you're going to have to make some adjustments in your life, right? You're going to probably have to adjust your Workout schedule, maybe. You're going to have to adjust what you eat. You may have to adjust how much you sleep. You're going to have to adjust your work life. You're going to have to make some significant life changes, would be my guess, in order to become an Olympic runner in the marathon representing the United States of America. Right? Now, taking that aside, think about anything, not just sports, but if you have a significant challenge in front of you, Typically, significant challenges require you to adjust something in your life. So, for example, say you want to get your doctorate at the U. In the same way, with that kind of a challenge, you're going to have to probably make some changes to make that a reality. So you want to start your own business. You're going to have to make some changes in your life to make that a reality. Maybe you want to learn to play an instrument and be in an orchestra. You're going to have to make some significant changes to make that a possibility and a reality, right? Right? 
The reason I start with that kind of goofy scenario about the Olympics is because it's the way John Ortberg, in chapter 3 of his book, The Life You Always Wanted, he opens with that analogy. And the idea is really talking about spiritual growth. And here's what he means by that, and here's what I'm trying to say today to start out. You know, when it comes to a significant physical challenge like becoming an Olympic runner, um, to you know, starting your own business or pursuing a doctorate, we intuitively know if that's going to be our challenge, if that's going to be our goal, we intuitively know we're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to do some things in our life to go into training in order to get to that level, right? But when it comes to our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, for whatever reason, sometimes I think we put it in a different category. And we don't always think it's going to take any work or training. It just kind of is there. And when we want to grow, we, just, we should just grow automatically. And yet Ortberg points out, and I completely agree, and I submit to you, that spiritual growth requires training. It requires focus. It, it requires sometimes we have to change our life in order to grow spiritually like the way that God has designed us to grow. And hearing all of that, my question to you today is, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? Well, in fact, that same chapter of John Ortberg's book, he goes on to explain and talk about spiritual growth. And he compares spiritual growth uh, between a motorboat on the one hand and a sailboat on the other. All right, so you can imagine uh, a motorboat, right, has a little fishing boat with a motor at the end, right? Or if you think of a speedboat, either way, you turn the engine on, and as long as the motor's working, you can go wherever you want, whatever speed you want, whatever direction you want. You're in control. Sailboat, on the other hand, get a nice picture of a sailboat. No matter how big it is, assuming, again, it doesn't have a motor, right? You may have the best sails in the world. You may have the best rudder. But if you have no wind, you're not going anywhere. You're not totally in control because you don't have a motor, right? You're dependent on the wind, so if you're going to be someone who's good at sailing, you have to be really good at reading the wind. And what you want to do is put your boat in the optimal position to catch as much wind as possible, right? So you want to go so that you can go the direction and the distance that you're planning to go. You're dependent on the wind. And Orberg makes the point that spiritual growth is much more like sailing than a motorboat. Because we can't control how God is going to work, where God's going to show up. What a spirit may do in your life. But what we can control is putting ourselves in a position to catch as much of the wind of God as possible. And that underlies the point today that we'd like to, I'd like to bring up and address is this question I just asked earlier. Are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? Are you putting yourself in an optimal position to experience the most of what God has for your life. So the question is, how do we do that? I think we all want to. We all want to absolutely optimize our life. But how do we do it? So how we're going to do it is we're going to look at a gentleman in Scripture we probably have all heard of. His name is Moses. He's kind of one of the great saints of the Bible. And the way we're going to look at his life is through the book of Hebrews, which is actually in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles or you can look on your iPhone, if you'd like to, you version, and look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to camp out at chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. And what I like to do is look at the life of Moses, because I believe he has some principles that can apply to our life when it comes to this area of spiritual growth. All right, it's going to be up here on the screen. Let's go and read together uh, verses 24 through 27. Here we go. It's up on the screen. You can follow along. 
Here it goes. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And verse 28 closes, by faith, he kept the Passover. Okay, I don't think you had that last part. But verse 24, let's go to the first part now. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Let's start there. So first of all, when it says, when he had grown up, in other words, when he had matured, this took time. This wasn't an immediate decision, but over time, as Moses grew up and became well-known, in fact, the phrase technically means having become great or well-known. So Moses now was old enough, he was mature, people knew who he was. He refused at that moment to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's kind of a strange thing when you first think about it, unless you know the context, right? So Moses was raised by Pharaoh's court, by one of Pharaoh's daughter, daughters, uh, even though he technically is Jewish, right? He, his parents were Jewish, his grandparents were Jewish, he was Jewish, but he was raised by Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh was the most powerful person and perhaps the most powerful nation on earth at that time. All the power, all the money. In fact, I would say it this way. It was part Washington, D.C. and part Beverly Hills put together. That's kind of what it was to live in Pharaoh's court at that time. And here's Moses right in the middle of it. I mean, he had access to all the money you could ever want, all the power connections you could ever want, all the parties and all the fun things you could ever want. He was in the middle of it. Why in the world would you reject the very people that raised you and the very connectors, the most powerful people, in the land at the time. Why would you want to do that? And it said something about Moses' character and it said something about Moses' faith. He chose to identify with his heritage, his Jewish heritage, instead of the Egyptian culture around him. I got to think that he knew that if he chose his true identity, that he was Jewish, his people were slaves, by the way. They were not in the in crowd. They weren't going to the right parties. They weren't wearing the right clothes. I mean, they were slaves. They had no rights. He chose to identify with his race, his culture. He probably figured he would be looked down upon. He'd be blacklisted, made fun of, excluded perhaps. He'd be put on the outside. But he chose nonetheless to not be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but to be identified with his people. Think about this maybe in a modern context. Imagine you worked at Apple and you didn't have an iPhone. You didn't even have a computer. That would be really strange, right? Or imagine you worked at a cattle ranch and you're a vegetarian. I mean, this just doesn't go together. I mean, why would Moses do this? Why would he, you know, live in the Egyptian, the center of the world, if you will, for Egyptian culture and reject it? Well, I believe, I'd submit to you that it actually went deeper into something even more important. And it was this, Moses wanted to connect, not just with his culture, but with his God. He wanted to make sure his identity at its very foundation was built on a relationship with God that he understood through his Jewish culture, his Jewish theology, because he believed that was the starting point. That was the most important thing in his life was to look at his life and build his identity on the way God viewed him. 
And I would submit that's the first principle I'd like to share with you today. If you and I are going to grow spiritually as Moses did, we have to start with the foundation of our life being based on how God views us, God's view of us. That's where our identity starts. See, I believe that God made you and I for a purpose. Each one of us have a purpose. And our figuring out what that purpose is starts with you being you. Not somebody else. Not what maybe even your parents want you to be or what a coach told you you ought to be or a teacher said you should be or a grandparent said, oh, you ought to become this. No, what God has created you uniquely to be, that's what you ought to start your identity upon. How God views you. And it's clear throughout scripture, first of all, God loves you. And God has a plan for your life and a purpose. That's where we start. That's the starting point today. And as we move forward and we asked that question earlier about, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? I want to hit the pause button. All right. In fact, I'm going to pull a Jeremiah here and I'm going to sit right here. And uh, this is kind of, I kind of like this. I, I can see why Jeremiah does this. It's kind of comfortable. Anyway, um, so what I want to do is this. I, w- I really do want to make sure I'm being really clear. Because when I first made that statement, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? You might think, wait a second, that sounds like a work for your salvation type theology. In other words, like if you left here and thought, you've got to jump on a spiritual treadmill and work really, really hard to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, you would be hearing the wrong message. Because that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm intending to say. So, Let me explain. Ephesians 2 says this. You and I are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Period. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So salvation, that big Christian word, salvation is through Christ. What Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We don't accomplish our own salvation. Christ already has. God, through Christ, offers the forgiveness of sins. That's the basis of our salvation. That's the basis of our relationship with God. That's not what we're talking about today. What I'm talking about actually is right after that same section of Ephesians 2. After Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, as it continues, after it talks about you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast, it goes on to say, you and I are God's masterpiece. That's the New Living Translation, or God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's the second part of it. So it's not about salvation. It's about the response to what God has already done for us. What God has already offered through Christ. Now, how do we live our lives? That's what I want to focus on. What does it mean that we're created in Christ to do good works? What kind of works are those? That's the question that underlies my question to you. Are we, are you doing everything You can, so that God can do everything he can. And Moses teaches us that it starts with our identity. What do we base our identity on? And it needs to start with how God views us. That's where it starts. And that leads us to the second thing today, and that is this, that Moses also teaches us to obey God in the small things. Obey God in the small things. Look here at Hebrews 11, 28. It's very interesting that what's included right in scripture and it highlights important things for us. So verse 28 says this by faith, he Moses kept the Passover. It's a small little phrase, right? Why is that so significant? So think about it. If you know a little bit of the background of the Exodus story, had the Passover ever happened up to this point? 
No, this is the first time. There is no, this is the first Passover. So here they are. If you know the context of Exodus, all these plagues are going uh, ravaging through Egypt. And Moses is a leader of his people. And God is working directly in and through Moses, right? And God tells Moses and the Jewish people, okay, it's coming to a climax now. Here's what I need you to do. And he's very specific. He has very specific instructions and includes sacrificing a lamb, taking the blood and putting it on the door frames of their homes. And it was very specific how God wanted them to do it. Just think about it. Here's one little sample of that. So imagine when you put blood on a door frame, that's a sign of the cross. It's a symbol, blood on wood, cross. It all points to Christ. There's a lot of reasons why God had the Jewish people do certain things the way they did it. And the point is this, that Moses saw no thing that was too small to obey God in. He followed everything that God told him to do. So he started by obeying the small things, if you will, because God had bigger things for him, but it started with the small things. And so for you and I, following God and growing spiritually starts with the small things in our life. You know, sometimes I think we, we all want to, okay, let's back up. Remember I talked about running the Olympics, right? Being in the marathon. If you were actually had that opportunity most of you, unless you're an incredible athlete, wouldn't be able to run a marathon at the same level at an Olympic level tomorrow. No, you'd have to start with the small things. You'd have to start training and getting to the point where you got better and better on your time. And you'd have to get someone who's a coach and can help you improve your time and improve all the different things you have to do, right, to get to that Olympic level. You start with the small things. You can't jump into this great, you know, Olympic time marathon right away. It takes time. What's the same in our spiritual life? It starts with the small things. And so maybe today, you know, as you look at your life and uh, you want God to work in your life in big ways. And I think God does want to do that, by the way. But it doesn't start with the big necessarily. It starts with the small things. So maybe today, you're either, perhaps you're a student, you're wrapping up summer school and you're so done and you're so ready to quit almost because you're just sick of studying during the summer, or you're preparing for the fall and you're dreading the semester that's facing you because you know it's going to be very, very difficult and you're not looking forward to it. Maybe God's saying today, be faithful in the small things. Be faithful in your studies right now. Do the best you can so that you can go to the next level. Or maybe in your relationships right now, in your friendships, and certainly your dating relationship, your marriage, what are the small things today that you need to be faithful in so that you can have even better relationships, a better marriage in the future? What are those small things right now that God is saying, be faithful in those things now? You know, maybe you're a parent and you spend a lot of your day wiping noses, wiping butts, changing diapers, and it feels very non-life-changing and very mundane. No one sees what you do, and yet what you do is so critical. You're impacting a life that'll have ripple effects for that girl or boy for the rest of his or her life. It's very important what you do. So be faithful in those small things. Maybe you're at a job right now and you are so discouraged because you feel like you should have gotten that raise that your coworker got or, or you could do a better job than your boss and you're just so frustrated with your job. Maybe God's just saying, be faithful where you are. Be faithful in the small things and wait for my timing for the bigger things. I don't know what you're facing, but I do know there's a principle here that God teaches us that if you're faithful with smaller things, God will give you bigger things. Are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can. 
In fact, you know, when I think about my own life and the times where I kind of hinder the work of God in my life is the best way to put it. This is how it goes for me. And maybe you're like me in this way. You know, um, there's a lot of distractions in life, isn't there? Right? I mean, I don't know about you. When you wake up first in the morning, I don't know what you do. Like I have my alarm on my uh, iPhone and so it wakes me up. And sometimes if I'm stressed, I think right away about work. Uh, maybe even open my email right away. Like I wake up and kind of barely there. I have my coffee and then I'm looking at my email right away. Or there's, I look at CNN or I look at the sports scores and ESPN or, or fantasy football during that season, you know, cause that is real. It's not fantasy. It's real. Um, and so I need to check. <laughs> um, I got to check those numbers, but and then I just find myself sometimes in life being distracted. Then I got to get to the next appointment. I got to get to the next meeting. And, and I never have that time to connect with God and reflect and, and read scripture like I know I should be and that, that I've done in the past. And, and then I think, okay, I feel guilty that day. So, okay, later that night, then I'll make sure I have time for God because I got to, you know, get my kids to karate and then and get back home and get them food and help with the homework and then do a little bit more work that night. And then I go, okay, now I'm ready to pray. 1030 at night. And I say, our father and... You know, um, and you fall asleep because you're so exhausted, right? Have you ever had that? And then you feel even more guilty the next morning, right? And the pattern continues. It's not that you're doing these great sins. It's just you're getting distracted with life. That's for me anyway what often, often happens that starts hindering God's work in my life because I start bringing the sails down because I'm distracted by other things. I probably have a little ADHD anyway. It's like a little shiny, oh, shiny, pretty, oh, cool. Um, you know, and with iPhones, that's really bad because there's so many distractions on that. The other thing that keeps me, I think, sometimes from God working in my life is allowing the stress of life to sometimes overwhelm my thinking. Maybe you're like this too, where just I wake up in the morning just with the dread of all that I have to do or just the stressful situations that are going on. And then I get consumed with the stress rather than saying, God, I give all that to you. I know you can handle it, so help me handle it, but I just give it to you and I just want to have some time to focus and get ready and prepare for the day. But if I let all that worry and anxiety creep in, it's often the rest of the day I'm not really focused on God. I'm focused on my problems and my stresses. And You know, Jesus talks about that, that one of the things that can choke the life of God's work in you is the worries, distractions, and stresses of life. And it's really the small things, if you will, right? They're small things that just add up to really big things. And all of a sudden, the next thing we know, we don't have our sails up. We're not moving forward in the water. We're kind of dead in the water because we're so distracted and worried and anxious about things. For me, anyway, that's what keeps me from growing as much as I'd like to grow. So I'm asking myself today, am I doing everything I can so that God can do everything he can? Moses dealt with the same thing. He's a human just like us. Let's look at the third thing. He has the third principle, and it's here in verse 25. I want to point out what he did. This is very critical in my mind. Look at verse 25 up here on the screen. Here's what Moses did. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's so much packed into that verse, but let me just highlight the third thing I want to point out from his life for us is that Moses chose character over comfort. Moses chose character over comfort. In fact, the word he chose, the Greek word is halamanas, halamanas. And this word clearly has the connotation of personally choosing a plan of action, a clear decision that moves you in a very precise direction. So in other words, this is not just like, ah, I think I'll just do this. No, no. He thought of the consequences. He thought of where he was going as a very intentional decision. He knew that he was choosing to be mistreated 
to become like his fellow Jews and, and, in a sense, associate with the slaves rather than enjoy all the other things that we mentioned before, right? Remember, he grew up in one part Washington, D.C., one part, one part uh, Beverly Hills, and he had all the money, all the parties, all the food. I mean, he could live the Paris Hilton life. I mean, it pretty much was what his choice. He could probably even have the dog that come, came with it. Um, he could have, you know, all the best of life, and he chose very intentionally to follow God instead and be mistreated like his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, as a slave. He chose that. Your life is full of choices, isn't it? You know, where are you going to work? And what are you going to major in? And who are you going to marry? And where do you want to live? What kind of house are you going to have? What kind of car are you going to drive? Life is full of choices. And we need a lot of discernment, right? We need a lot of wisdom when it comes to Making decisions, and I would just submit to you, as you start making decisions, would you enlarge that process a bit to remember that maybe character plays a bigger piece than comfort? And it may be obvious, but, but we have real-life examples, right, in our life where it's tough sometimes. Let me give you an example of my own life. About nine years ago, I was a pastor of a church in Colorado before I moved to Utah. And I was, um, I had just actually traded in my, our Subaru that we had for years and years and got a new SUV Toyota. And, uh, now it was an, a used car, but it was the nicest car I, I'd ever owned up to this point. So I loved it. This is great. And, uh, it coincided with the new series that we were doing with the church I was leading. And, uh, the challenge was to the congregation I was giving was to really begin to invest your money, invest your time into things beyond your world into the larger world. And one of the examples was, for example, we had a great relationship with both a school and a ministry in India. And uh, it was led by an Indian, and he would take kids and, and uh, make sure they had food, make sure they have education. Sometimes they had to be adopted even because of their situation. And so we would sponsor kids, much like World Vision or Compassion International, if you're familiar with those two organizations, very similar. And here I am leading the congregation saying, so we got to really consider this. And this whole time I went home, I remember that weekend, and I just had this really strong impression from God that I needed to trade my new used truck for another one that's less expensive. And here's why. Because monetarily, if I drop my monthly payment, I could actually support more kids in India. And I'll be honest, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I really struggle with that one. I'm like, I just got it. It's so nice. Really? I mean, there's so many other things I can give, you know, in addition to. I can just, you know, give more money and, and keep the truck. And, and I don't know if you've ever had, like, arguments with God and kind of, like, these debates. And, but I, I couldn't shake I'm serious. I couldn't shake it. And I really wrestled with it. And I finally gave in, and, and I did. So I went back. In fact, I had a buddy who worked at a dealership, and he actually did this auction and found this SUV for me. And I went back to him, and I felt so embarrassed. Like, well, here, explain. You know, I had this, I felt like God told me to do this and to change it back in. It was just, I thought he would never believe the story. But he did. He was very gracious. And so I swapped it out for a less expensive Toyota. We weren't going to mention what kind of Toyota it is. But um, no, uh, it was another car, but it was less expensive. And, and the extra money that I was able to give towards this ministry in India now, I say that story to you, not because, hey, look at how great Rob is, because, no, I'm actually kind of embarrassed that I struggled with it so much, honestly. Um, it should have just been an easy decision, right? I share that because of the impact it had on people around me. First of all, my church, they knew what kind of truck I had and the, the switch I made. But more than that, my daughter, my oldest daughter at the time, nine years ago, was about seven years old, eight years old. And she told me later, in fact, she, she's brought it up since, 
years later, how much of an impression that made on her because she knew how much I loved my SUV. And it was really interesting, right? And I know you and I think, well, of course, yeah, our decisions impact more people than we think. But no, really, your choices are way more than just about you. The choices you make impact way more people than you maybe even realize. Not just your kids, but your neighbors, your coworkers, other family members that hear about your decisions from afar. I think sometimes we downplay the impact of our decisions. And then God, if we want to grow spiritually and do everything we can so God can do everything he can, I think we have to just, again, enlarge the process of decision-making to think through what will this choice do, not just for me, but for all those other people around me. And Moses knew that. Moses knew by making that decision of being mistreated and identifying with his own people. Can you imagine how they felt about Moses? I mean, they just rallied around him as their leader because he was willing to do that. They saw what he gave up. The whole Paris Hilton life, he turned his back on it and was chose to be mistreated. And God began to you know, continue to use his life. So again, let me ask you, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can and wants to do through your life? It comes down to our choices. And we all get to choose them. That's something we do. We get to choose how we're going to live our life. You know, just uh, on July 4th, just a couple of weeks ago, my father-in-law is 80 years old. And uh, we celebrated this year. In fact, we invited a bunch of my wife's family from California to celebrate with my father-in-law. And it was really fun, actually. And even having 17 people, that was a little crazy. But it was really fun having them all there. And, you know, when you're 80 years old, you start asking those questions about what kind of legacy am I leaving? What kind of impact am I having on my grandkids, which are my kids, and his own kids, which is my wife? You know, and what kind of life are you living? What do people think of me? What, what is the legacy that I'm leaving, right? Those are the questions you ask when you're 80 years old. I had a great time talking to him, and it got me thinking about that as I was thinking about this message. In fact, you know, you think about it, we have, I'm sure you've thought about this before, like what do you want on your epitaph, right? What do you want on your cemetery stone, or what do you want written about you in the paper? What, what do you want people to share at your memorial service? And I know it's a little bit morbid to think that, but we've got to start thinking about it now. Now, it's kind of a serious subject, so to lighten the mood a little bit, uh, this is kind of morbid too, but you can actually, there's some really funny epitaphs out there that you can Google. <laughs> They're really actually quite hilarious. Um, let me just share a couple of those with you. I found these. You can get them on the internet if you want. Um, here's a couple of epitaphs on real cemeteries, on real tombstones. Here's one from Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Tombstone Arizona. Lester Moore's tomb. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. I was kind of like, that's pretty clever. Here's one in Reduso, New Mexico. Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. <laughs> that was good. Like, wow. Ye oh, yeah, Yeast rising. Okay. Memory of an accident in Uniontown, Pennsylvania says, Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. Stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> A little brutal, but it rhymed. It was good. Um, in Silver Lake, uh, Silver City, Nevada, it says this, here lays Butch. We planted him raw. He was quick on the trigger, but slow on the draw. <laughs> and then one more, a lawyer epitaph in England, Sir John Strange. Here lies an honest lawyer. And that is strange. Uh, so, <laughs> but no, here's my favorite one. In Georgia, a real cemetery, a real tombstone says, I told you I was sick. <laughs> That's brutal. Seriously. Whoa. 
They were not very receptive to her. Um, you wonder what happened in that family. Anyway, um, epitaphs, what we think about, what do people remember about you? What do you want people to remember or say about you? Here's what the Bible said about Moses. Deuteronomy 34. I don't think it's up on the screen. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. That's a pretty good epitaph. And I think it's because of this one thing. And and let's look at verse 26, Hebrews 11. We read it earlier. Let me read it again. Here's what Moses decided to do. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of, of Egypt. Here's how. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. And the principle I've pulled out from that is that he always lived with the end in mind. He had a bigger picture for his life that was well beyond the current circumstances of where he found himself. He always lived with the end in mind. And that word that we just read, he was looking ahead. The Greek word is apoblepen, apoblepen. It means to look away from, turn your attention away from everything else to this one object. To focus so intently on that, that that's what would drive your life. And for Moses, he looked beyond all of his current circumstances to what God had for him. As I said, his reward. That's a pretty powerful way to live. It would clarify your purposes. It clarifies your values. It helps you make better decisions. And it goes back to what we've been asking. Are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? Are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? You know, Paul kind of picks this theme up in Colossians 3. Here's how Paul describes this idea of kind of looking ahead. He says in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, Since then, you who have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's having a focus. That's keeping the end in mind as you live your life now. And here's the thing. We all know this, but it's hard to do it. We don't want to wait till we're 80 years old and finally say, hey, I wonder what my legacy should be. You know, first of all, we may, no guarantees you'll get to 80, but when you get to 80, maybe too late to create a legacy, right? No, it's never too late, but it starts now. Don't wait till you're 80. Start now. Start living your life now. Always have the end in mind now so that when you get to 80, there's no regrets. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine where you are in your spiritual life right now. This is just between you and God. And I, just to help us think this through, I've got three pictures of sailboats up here and uh, just three different options, right? So if you were to describe your spiritual life with a sailboat, because we've used that as an analogy today, right? Uh, the first one here on the left is you see this really wonderful sailboat. It's in the water. It's moving forward in a sunset, beautiful setting, but the sails are down. You kind of have this image of just kind of cruising along. Not really moving forward too fast, but certainly in the water, moving. And maybe you're in your spiritual life, you have a relationship with God. Uh, you're not doing terrible things in life, but you're just kind of cruising along and, and you've kind of brought your sails down. Maybe you, like me, you've gotten distracted by other things in life. You've got other things on your mind, and so you're just kind of cruising. And maybe God is prompting you today to say, get your sails back up. I've got more sunsets for you to watch. I have greater adventures. You're not done yet. Let's move forward. Crank those sails up because I've got more for your life. 
Maybe that's where you are. There's a second one. The middle one, you know, it's fun. It's still in the harbor. Uh, you can see, I don't know if you can see the picture, but there's moss on this boat. It doesn't look like the, the boat has been used uh, recently. The mast doesn't look so good. Maybe it's not even fully functional. There's certainly no sail to be seen. Maybe you're at a place right now where you're, you've gone through, you've been sailing, and you hit some storms in life, and so therefore you packed it in. You just said, okay, I'm going to park my boat. I'm out of there because I'm sick of all that life has brought to me. You've had too many storms, too much pain, and you've kind of given up on your spiritual life maybe, if you're honest. If that's you today, number one, pain is part of life, and that's, it's okay. Embrace that, but don't let it shut you down spiritually. Don't let it just make you park your dreams and park what you thought God had for your life. No, get the healing you need. Talk to people. Meet with one of our staff. I mean, start moving forward. Make steps where you can find healing to work through and to make sense of some of your past, some of your pain. But don't let it shut you down completely because God isn't done with you yet. God has a plan for your life and this is not the end of it. You have a lot more sailing to do. And that leads us to the third one. The third one is, you know, you've got this sailboat that's cruising along. It's got a sail full of wind, right? Making waves, moving forward. And so some of you today, that's where you are. Every day you get up, you're like, this is an adventure. I'm going to fuck. God, what do you want for me today? I can't wait to see what you have for me. And every day your sails are full of God's wind and you're moving this way and that way. And you're so excited to see all that God is doing in your life. If that's the case, I'm so excited for you. Keep going. And if that's not you today, I think all of us would agree. That's what we want. That's what we want in our life. We want the fresh wind of God in our life, right? We want to be led and directed by God in ways we've never seen or dreamed of. And I believe that God wants to get each one of us there. But we have to answer the question, am I doing, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? We do have a part to play. Let me leave you with a quote from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. He says this. I'm going to leave it up here on the screen so you can read it. It's such a powerful quote. When it comes to our spiritual growth, this is a great analogy. He says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new, new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live it himself. Have you ever imagined that God wants to, through his spirit, to live in your life and to use your, your life to impact people all around you, perhaps even the world? Let me tell you, at one level, you're no different than Moses. You're a human being, just like Moses was. And God just is in the habit of taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things through them. So maybe today it's time to crank those sails back up and look for that wind to catch whatever God has for your life. But we have to answer the question, are you doing everything you can so that God can do everything he can? Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for this group of people that are gathered this morning. The fact that they're here, God, you know their heart. To the, they want to grow spiritually. They're, they're interested in taking the next step. They're, they're seeking answers to their questions. So wherever people are in their spiritual journey today, God, thank you that you brought them here today. Whatever you want to communicate to them, may that be the main idea they take away. I pray for all of us that we would have the courage and have the faith, God, to raise our sails back up wherever we are. Uh, maybe those pictures didn't identify where we are. Maybe we're in between the pictures that I just shared. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, wherever we're feeling about our spiritual growth, may you help us, God, to move forward and to trust that you have much more sailing for all of us to do. So whether we're facing pain right now or joy or distraction or worry or anxiety, may we look to you and really ask you to lead our life. And may we put ourselves in the optimal position so that you can fill our life with your wind, God, and your spirit and your power and your grace. That's my prayer for all of us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, um, Troy said I had to give you homework. <laughs> if you've been here, you know you always have homework every uh, service. So let me just give you a couple of things. I want to give you a couple of resources. Number one is this, the book up here, The Life You Always Wanted. I gave you chapter three or the beginning of chapter three, John Ortberg. Great book. Very easy to digest. The chapters are fairly simple, but very profound. Great book to start with. Um, we did have it in the library back there, but we're sold out. But that's one on Amazon. I check it out. Another one, um, The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. Excellent book. In fact, the first book, John Orberg, based a lot of it off of this book uh, because he's a protege, if you will, of Dallas Willard. Excellent book again about the whole area of spiritual disciplines and spiritual growth. Then there's a second one by Dallas Willard called The Renovation of the Heart. Fantastic book. It's thick. I'll just prepare you for it. It's meaty. There's a lot there and it's fantastic. Now, some of you may say, again, you're not ready to jump into an Olympic marathon and this may be like, whoa, I read the book, Robin, it's just too thick. Well, there's a book that's a companion book that's uh, uh, called The Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice. And an author basically took Dallas Willard's idea and broke them into smaller chunks, if you will, and has spread it over 60 days. So you can apply something every day of what he says in his book. So that's another option. Again, you can Amazon or Google that. And uh, this book, Dallas Willard, he has a lot of different books, but those two I highly recommend when it comes to spiritual growth issues. And then here's the last thing I like to do for homework. And it's this. Here's my challenge. And I do it today. Okay, do it today sometime. Either this afternoon, do it this evening before you go to sleep. Do it before. So make sure you have enough in your system to stay awake. But I really want you to do this. Just between you and God. Think about that analogy we did with the, the different boats. And analyze and examine your spiritual life right now. Like maybe those three different boats didn't quite quantify where you are. Maybe you're in between somewhere. But wherever you are in your spiritual journey, uh, number one, it's okay. God knows where you are. He loves you right where you are. But what is that one step you can take to move forward, to get more of the wind of God in your life? You know, from maybe on a scale of one to 10, maybe you're at zero right now. And that's real. That's okay. What is it going to take to get to one? Start there. Maybe you're at a five. What is it going to take for you to get to a six? How are you going to get maybe more in the water? Raise those sails a little higher. Get a little bit more wind. Whatever it is, this is between you and God. But my encouragement is don't let this message just wash in and wash out. Examine where you are spiritually. Because one of these days, if you move forward and you trust God, you may be running spiritual marathons and doing things you never imagined today you'd ever do. 
Because that's the way God works. He certainly did in Moses' life, and he can do the same in yours. That's my prayer for you. Well, hey, there's people up here. If you need to pray with people, uh, if you just want to come up and just talk to anybody about what's going on in your life or maybe something hits you today, I'll be up here as well. We'd love to pray for you and uh, be with you. But anyway, thanks for being here. Have a great Sunday, and we will see you next week.